Hello, Tanzilla Files, and welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave. And as a Tanzilla expert, escapingthecave.com for right now. Gonna have information on that coming soon. It's gonna be a change. Pretty much decided on that. I'm your friendly and congenial host, Todd. Got a reload for you, as you probably saw. You've clicked on it, you've seen the title. This is a reload of episode number 67. This is really interesting. It's recorded and released on March 2nd, 2020, right at the very outset of COVID. I mentioned in the show, you're going to hear it, that the virus had just hit Florida, very first case, and there were something like three deaths, I think, in the country. Or maybe it was worldwide. I don't, know, I don't remember. You'll have to listen. But it's right at the very beginning. It was just starting to become a thing. And this thing is interesting to listen to. Really interesting to listen to. With three years of hindsight and on the other side of the pandemic. I'm going to leave the how we did kind of stuff. Yeah, how we did in retrospect with hindsight. I'll leave all those judgments to you. I'm not going to talk too much about that. At least for right now. Uh, I'm going to talk about this podcast though. Uh, the very first part of this show that you're about to listen to focuses on your undivided attention. This is a podcast put on by the Center for Humane Technology. I was really into this podcast back at that point in time. Kind of, uh, they've fallen off my radar. Uh, some of you know why. There's an episode back there talking about that. But this is one of their better ones. Their guest is uh, Rachel Botsman. She's the author of a book called Who Can You Trust? Written back in uh, 2018, I think. And it's all about trust, like how people trust uh, institutions, other people, all this stuff, and what happens when that trust falls apart. Now, considering that their episode was released at the end of 2019, I recorded mine March of 2020. Their episode was released at the end of 2019, before COVID. Her insights into trust in both media and institutions were something beyond prescient. Her thoughts on what she calls reality apathy, they still dovetail perfectly with my focus on tech-driven data overload. You've heard me talk about that so many times, you could hear it again and again and again in the show, and the state of informational anarchy into which we continue to descend. It's, it's only gotten worse, partially because of what at this time was the forthcoming pandemic. A lot of talk about that. Also, with Fox News and their intentionally deceptive coverage of Trump's election lie being front and center these days, this episode remains relevant in that they and I, by myself, discuss what I've called the Media 101 for-profit model. How profit pressures influence news content, spin, presentation, all of that. It's front and center this week. Matt Taibbi is also in the news this week. Well, his book... Uh, Hate Incorporated also makes its way into the episode under that topic, that Media 101 topic, and how uh, we are selling Soylent Green, selling ourselves back to each other via hatred and agitation propaganda. For-profit agitprop. From there, my focus turns to COVID-19 and the uncertainty about what was coming at that point in time and how our tribalistic resentments, lack of trust, might only make things worse. Speculation. How do you think it, how, how, did, how did that work out? Again, I'm going to leave that alone, let you listen without much of a setup, okay? Uh, you make your own determinations there, your own judgments. But this episode, and, and, and a few that followed in March, maybe April of 2020, they have proven to be wonderful little snapshots, man, little time capsules of a moment that none of us, 
none of us are ever going to forget it. This is one of my stronger ones, one of my favorite episodes. Uh, I really enjoy it. I'm really proud of this one. Once again, it's from March 2nd, 2020. This is Propaganda, Trust, Coronavirus, and You. We'll talk to you at the end. Steering the ship in another direction. I've been talking about independent thought, validation addiction, and all that stuff for the last couple of weeks. It's time to move on to something more, mm, less abstract. It's going to be the media, but not quite yet. I have something I'm going to use to set all this up. I've been talking about your undivided attention. That's another podcast. It's not usually uh, par for the course for a podcaster to promote another podcast when they don't have one of the podcasters on as a guest. These guys don't even know I exist, I'm sure. That's okay. If you're listening to my show, you should definitely be listening to theirs. Your Undivided Attention. Center for Humane Technology, I think, is the organization. It's a nonprofit. They don't have ads in their podcast. I don't think they're really monetizing this thing at all. If they are, I can't tell how. We are a rare breed. But uh, an episode they did maybe a month, six weeks ago, I didn't check the date on it, but it's called uh, Trust Falls. And it's a perfect gateway to this uh, latest examination, short examination, relatively speaking anyway, of uh, the media. And the episode I'm highlighting, they have a guest named Rachel Botsman. She is a trust fellow from Oxford University. She has a book out there called Who Can You Trust? I have not read it. I will. Once I tear through the stack, I've got. She also has a podcast I've not listened to yet either, probably should. Uh, It's called Trust Issues. She knows what she's talking about. And I was enthralled with this podcast because of its timeliness and how many directions and how many different places that it applies to the current state of affairs, not just in this country, but I think uh, worldwide. But I think you'll understand, and I think you'll see exactly where this is going once we get into it. So let's do that. The mechanisms of trust are breaking down. The next chapter of history, Rachel says, is frighteningly devoid of structure. It becomes harder and harder to know whom to trust. And when you don't know what or whom to trust, that creates a vacuum. A vacuum for bad actors and misinformation and people that actually know how to manipulate that vacuum. And that's the polarization and sheer chaos that I think we're seeing all around the world today. Every day that passes is a day that we lose trust in some of these systems. We're losing trust in our leaders. We're losing trust in our discourse. We're losing trust in the democratic process. And the risk isn't just that we hurtle back into an era of local trust. It's worse. With the onslaught of new methods of deception and bots and deepfake technologies, we may give up altogether. We maybe get trust apathy. So the question remains, how do you reboot trust from that state? This image of trust being in a state of decline and trust in a state of crisis isn't accurately describing that what actually is happening is we are giving our trust away too easily. Who do you trust? And I really was struck when I first heard this episode about how we're giving our trust away too easily. I'm not 100% sure that's what it is, and I think she sort of uh, goes off another path later on in the show because I think it ties in, (laughs) I know it ties in, to data overload and being bombarded with endless streams of disconnected data that is not pre-curated. It's only put forth into our feeds, into our eyes, into our ears, 
because it's something that the content producers understand will appeal to a certain segment, a certain demographic, a certain ideological congregation within the public. It doesn't matter if it's true. The most important thing is getting those advertisements in front of eyeballs or eardrums, in podcasting's case, or in radio's case, talk radio. Talk radio is a perfect example, and this has been going on in talk radio for years. Rush Limbaugh. He's an excellent broadcast, fantastic broadcaster. I respect the hell out of him for what he does, just for his, his professional skill. But that entire show has been crafted, yes, as an ideological mouthpiece, but also because they understood a long time ago that there was an audience for that and they could sell advertising with it. He, he Do you realize how much money he makes a year? It's something like $80 million. $80 million? Does his contract or something? I'm not sure if that's a year or total. Whatever. This guy's incredibly high paid because he's worth it to the advertisers, because he puts forth a product that draws people in. You've got to understand this. You have got to drill this into your brain that the stuff you're seeing on social media and the electronic media, all media, if they're selling you something, they're giving, they're putting something in that trough to get the bovine to it to feed so they can put the advertisers in front of them. That's the problem, and we're going to get into this. We're going to get back into this. I went into a lot of this last year in the Media 101 podcast. This is going to be Media 201. We're going to get a little deeper into it now. We're going to launch with trust and why this is important. When the institutions fail, when you do not believe in the institutions, we're wide open to be manipulated by demagogues and propagandists. There has got to be trust in something. There's got to be something demonstrated that, that is something out there that is trustworthy. So we know what to believe. So we know somebody's not just bullshitting us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. In fact, she gets into it in this next clip. Let's do that. I won't do panels anymore on this topic because the moderator wants you to sit on a side. They want you to, right? They're like, pick a side. Are you for or against? I need to know. I need to wait my panel. And you're like, well, I can't answer that question. What's your diagnosis of why that that's true? I think it has a lot to do with identity. I think people want to know what side you're on, whatever the issue is. That's why um, I've become a lot more conscious in my work in any label that is a binary or a polarizing label like remain leave anti pro for and against right left i learned this the hard way because i made this series on anti-vaxxers and one of the things i wanted to be very careful of not doing was pitting the expert against the anti-vaxxer and what i realized from speaking with anti-vaxxers and really trying to understand where their views come from I realized that they care about the same thing that I do. They care about their children. And I know it sounds such an obvious point, but we lose sight of this. I think often in these conversations, we care about the same thing, but our views on how we get there are very different. And it's really, it's really hard to do. You know, like I'm very pro-vaccinations. I, you know, I had measles when I was a child and, and lost my eyesight for a while. It took every bone in my body to not get angry and defensive and even to sort of shut these people down and you know what was going on in my head was like just stupid right but they weren't stupid they were incredibly informed and at certain points in the conversation I was actually like 
my God, maybe I, I have got it wrong because I didn't know that about the CDC and that relationship to that pharma company. And so I think when we sort of open ourselves up to really trying to understand the belief system and what someone else cares about, it's not the solution, but it's, it's a way to find more common ground. Well, and per the attention economy, it's never been easier to lose the context behind someone else's statements. Technology creates the ability to connect with someone across the world, but you don't know that person's world because you're just seeing 140 characters of text with them. And so it goes back to your point about if trust is our relationship with the unknown and trust is scaled by technology, it's not doing a good job of pulling in the full contextual space that that other view might be living inside of. And then there's this co-evolutionary force of increasing polarization, increasing identity, which means that it's easier than ever to project the least charitable view of anything you see onto a person in front of you. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot about beliefs. This idea that you and I and others can't have any kind of shared sense of reality because we don't know what is true or false or what is fact or fiction that the stage on from that, the term being used, which is brilliant, is this idea of reality apathy, that we reach a stage where we don't care, going from a world where we're both seeing the same things to not knowing whether what we're looking at is true or false, fake or real, to not really caring. Yeah, I mean, I think the issue of caring is is really important. I was just talking with someone on the phone last night who does work on elections around the world. I was talking with her about how at the end of the day, if you don't know what to trust, you just go back to trusting the people around you, right? Like, I mean, imagine yeah. a world where you don't know if anything you see on social media is true. Like, it could all just be false. So I, I don't know what to trust. I'm tired of it. I don't really have time. I've got to feed my kids. You know, what are we going to do? I'll just trust the people around me because that's just You a go lot back to local easier. trust. Right. You revert back. Your... Yeah. We contract when people stop trusting what they see and hear outwards. They contract and they look inwards. You know, we were talking about trust surveys, which I take with a pinch of salt because I think they miss how contextual and subjective trust is. But I, I found it really amazing that key theme that was emerging was that the most important trust relationship in people's lives is starting to become the employer and the employee. And I actually found that really frightening that people are starting to turn to the people that they're employed by for information on all these things that we used to get from a variety of sources. And I think that's that's exactly what you're talking about. That is disturbing. That is creepy. That the highest trust level we have is coming from the people who pay us. And there's so much in here, man. I, that was a four and a half minute clip. And I, I feel like I could probably talk 15 minutes on it. There's so much in there, starting with what side are you on? When she goes on a panel, she doesn't do panel shows anymore because the moderator wants to pitch you on one side and the other guy against you so they can sell the conflict. That is the television model. It's the crossfire model. You remember John Stewart? I don't know, 15 years ago? He uh, sat down with Tucker Carlson and just tore him an asshole. But it's gotten worse. It hasn't gotten better. That's a classic clip. It went one of the first viral clips probably, right? <laughs> Maybe not, but... It seems that way. I mean, everybody remembers when he did that. Just said, you, you, you guys suck. It's terrible. Why are you doing this? But it's still the model now. Except what they've done is they've taken networks and they've pitted one against the other. They pitted themselves against these guys. Us against them. And that's all that matters. And then they craft the product around that. And give you what you want. 
Is there any reason she made a comment in there about a shared sense of reality and then falling into reality apathy? Is there any question why we do not have a common set of facts, even a slight idea, that there's an external objective truth out there that we all should be pursuing? This feels better. Giving us what we want, putting us at the center of the universe, putting our narrative, our pseudo-environment, our political congregation on the side of righteousness against the evil horde. I talked about that in the last episode. And this is the agitation propaganda model that I'm going to be talking a lot about. I've talked a ton about that already. It's coming back. I'm going to get a little further into it as well, because that is the agitation propaganda model. That is the unleashing of human hatreds. Alul talked about this. It was incredibly uncomfortable to read it. It was even more incredibly uncomfortable to put it in the podcast. But people need to hate something. It's a primal human thing. We have got to start understanding that. Introspection matters. Understanding and knowing ourselves matters. And if we're not willing to see that, if we're just willing to see the other guy is evil rather than looking at ourselves and understanding, you know what, I just want to fucking hate somebody. I just want to feel like I'm on the side of righteousness. Because it elevates me and my sense of identity. She talked about the identity in there as well. That's a huge part of it because they can craft that agitation propaganda to elevate you. While they're agitating you against the other guy, they elevate you and put on the armor of righteousness, as Lippmann called it. It takes on the weight of Holy Scripture. Then you descend into a mob with that moral certitude that I've talked so much about. And you got to keep in mind, the other guys are doing the same thing. They're just as certain you are just as evil as you think they are. That is the stuff that's being unleashed here. There's no two ways around that. There's no other way to spin this. All you have to do is look around. And eventually, you get to the point, like she said, you don't know what to believe. If you're a conscientious informational consumer, what do you believe? When everybody's a liar, nobody's telling you the truth. Then how do you trust that? How do you trust anything? How do you know what to trust? Would you know it if you saw it? It's incredibly dangerous. As we're about to find out, if we haven't figured it out already, we're going to find that out really soon. I think you know why. I'll be pivoting to that here in a couple of minutes. I also like the thing about buzzwords uh, that she mentioned in that clip as well. It's something, as I was listening to this, I realized that I have been doing this subconsciously for a really long time. There's just these words that pop out of people's mouths when I hear them. I'm like, oh, okay, she's trying to minister to me. She's trying to give me her testimony. And the discourse is full of that stuff. I like the fact that she talked about the anti-vaxxers. Now, this was put out before the coronavirus was a thing. you got to keep that in mind. This wasn't put out like three days ago. I think it might have been the end of December or maybe the beginning of January. And the other thing, too, is the path to commonality that she mentioned. I mean, if, if you realize when you're talking to somebody with a different set of preferred solutions and keeping in mind that you want the same thing, that you're concerned about the same thing most of the time. And it's something that she gets into in this episode. I don't think I included it in any of the clips, but the conversations and the discourse descend so quickly into personal attacks or just vitriol. 
that it's so easy to forget that, and then all of a sudden you're just dealing with a, with a heretic and a blasphemer, somebody who hates America or hates your version of America. Data overload, big deal. She didn't really mention that in this, but I think that's uh, a huge factor in all this. I may have mentioned that. Uh, and, and all this, I think, is, is sort of a descent into the conspiracy theory mindset where you're asking yourself, hey, you know, can I believe this? Is this something I can allow myself to believe rather than asking, uh, is this true? Is that a fact? Or is it just something I want to <laughs> internalize, digest, and, and then regurgitate later on? And the shared sense of reality, man, that is huge. Reality apathy. Reality apathy and coronavirus. Put that in your craw. Let's continue on. I think the leaders of Facebook, the only thing that is going to work now is a very, very grand gesture around their intentions and motives to genuinely demonstrate that their intentions are in the best interests of users. And that has to lie around the business model. I think anything else, anything else, to be honest, just is a waste of time. It's not going to move people on. Well, you know how much I agree with you. That's why we came up with you know this sort of description that sometimes listening to tech leadership is like watching a, a hostage in a hostage video. Like the things that they're saying don't make any sense until you see the gunman holding a gun at their head from off stage, And the business model is that gun. And you're like, oh, that's why they're acting so crazy and saying all that gibberish. And I want to be clear that, you know, I've met many tech leaders and I don't think they're bad people. I think they are. They are trapped. And I think the things they are told internally that make complete sense internally don't work externally. You know, I I sat on a panel with Ruth Porat, who's CFO of Alphabet, uh, the holding company of, of Google. And I remember this moment where... She said that there's no trust issues with Google. People perform trillions of searches on our platform every single day. And my mouth like nearly dropped. But then I realized like everything that's put in front of her, the way they measure trust is in the same way that they measure growth and profits and money. And so I think it's often the internal narrative doesn't help their decisions and how they really need to behave and the way the external world actually perceives what is going on. There are two main things that I want you to take away from this before I go off on a small little tangent here. I want you to remember the internal conversation. She just called it the internal narrative. And this obviously plays in. I could, I could make a, a, a complete segment <laughs> on uh, Facebook and trust. But that's not what I'm talking about. I included this because what she's talking about definitely ties in to our media. Not just social media. I'm talking about the network news and where we get our current events information from. The internal narrative within these companies is based on profit. These companies are corporations. They are a for-profit business. Ed Murrow warned us all about this. What would happen? What could happen? What has happened once news and information became a commodity to be sold on a marketplace? The man was a profit. And the internal conversations that go on inside of these companies are about profits. They have got to turn a profit. They got to. They got to offer a return to the shareholders, and that means they have got to give you something that you are going to click on, or watch, and they need to maximize that. And they have figured out that agitation, hatred, is the thing that sells. 
It's a primal instinct in us. You give us a threat. You give us something to fight against, something to go to war against. We will unite at least within our echo chambers, at least within our congregations. And they figured out how to monetize what is essentially, not even essentially, it literally is agitation propaganda directed at our own populace. It's pretty damn simple. And that is the profit motive. Now, here's the, here's the tangent. I'll try not to go on too long here because I really want to get back to this. And I need to pivot. Remember, profit motive. Something else in there, though. No trust issues with Google. That cracked me up when I heard it. I mean, she explained it with the internal narrative. I understand all that. But what it reminded me of was Brian Stelter. You know who he is? He's on CNN. He's this guy that just has this, he has this on-screen persona. I am in a righteous battle for the noble profession of journalism. Ha, 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 ha. He has a show on every Sunday morning on CNN. It's called uh, Reliable Sources, where the show presumes to critique the media. A show on CNN trying to uh, pretend that they're, you know, really doing a deep dive into how the media is doing. And I, I tried to watch it. I was kind of excited when I first found out about it. And I tried to watch it, I think, for three weeks. And I couldn't stand it. There were a couple of segments in there that were pretty good, but it's all talking about Fox News most of the time. And when it's not talking about Fox News, when it's talking about the other organizations and their fuck-ups, it descended into something of an apologist show, trying to explain it away, unless it was Fox News. If you've detached your identity from the ideology, and you sit down and you watch that stupid network, it's laughable watching him defend that network and the rest of the corporate media, the rest of the boutique news media, the rest of the agitation media. It's laughable. And it would be laughable if he didn't have this, this expression on his face. It's like he thinks he's Sir Lancelot. How can he watch his own network? How can he watch Brooke Baldwin, one of the Brooke girls, on in the daytime? editorialize constantly with her eyes or with her mouth and pretend that that is a journalism-based network. That is a boutique news network. They should change their name to BNN. It's ludicrous. Now, we were talking about the profit motive, right? And I'm sure if you've been paying attention to the news at all, you probably have heard the name Project Veritas. Anyway, they hoodwinked an ABC News reporter named uh, David Wright. And as they pointed out in their piece on their website, this guy graduated from Harvard. I mean, he's not a hack. He knows what he's doing. This isn't an office temp here. And they had a hidden camera, and they got him talking about the media, and they got him talking about ABC News and how they cover Donald Trump. With Trump, we're interested in three things. We're interested in the outrage of the day, the investigation, and kind of the palace intrigue of who's backstabbing who. But beyond that, we don't really cover the guy. Outrage of the day, the investigation, and the palace intrigue. I apologize for the audio. It's not my fault. They had a hidden camera in a crowded room. This may be a little rough to listen to. Go check out the uh, video online if you want to see it. Project Veritas has it up, and I'm sure there's other places. But that's it, isn't it? The outrage of the day. What did Trump do today that will piss the viewers off? Give them a sense of noble righteousness against this guy. Or the investigation, the impeachment investigation. How are we going to get him? Or the palace intrigue, the drama, the soap opera, the infotainment. 
aspect of this <clears throat> news organization. They are not in the business of giving you news and current events information. They are in the business of entertaining you. The purpose of news is to draw you in and keep you there in front of the advertisers. I'm going to keep saying that. I'm going to drill that into your skull. If you have headphones on, <laughs> it's going to be like a needle by the time I'm done. But that is the point. Keeping you in front of the screen and you like to be angry like Ren from Ren and Stimpy. I like being angry. It sells. It's incredibly potent. And then it gets kind of silly here. Kind of silly. He goes on to talk about ABC's other motivation. You can't watch Good Morning America without it, there being a Disney princess or a Marvel Avenger appearing. It's, it's all self-promotion. Right. And promotion of the company and also promotion of individuals within the company. Yeah. As opposed to dedication to the story and a commitment to telling stories that we need to tell but that are maybe hard to tell. What he's talking about there is uh, he says that you can't watch Good Morning America without seeing a Disney princess or a Marvel character, right? What he's talking about is corporate incest. Putting ABC's, the, the entire corporation, Disney, onto ABC News and selling their own product while pretending to give you news and current events. Now, he's talking about Good Morning America. That's more of an entertainment show, but they do sort of portray themselves as the morning news as well. I did a rant on Matt Lauer. Uh, about a year ago, when I was hitchhiking up in Vermont a couple of uh, years ago, I about got thrown out of a truck stop because I was yelling at the Today Show. But they do versions of the same thing. Product placement. Paid product placement. That's what the point is. Putting your eyeballs in front of something to sell. Now, David Wright, this guy, Mr. ABC guy, he was suspended for this. He, didn't, he, he wasn't suspended because he lied. He was suspended because he got hoodwinked and sort of gave you a peek at uh, Oz behind the curtain. Not a big fan of Project Veritas. I don't like how they sort of set people up like this. But in this case, in this particular case, because it's so damn important, I have absolutely no problem with this. No moral qualms with it at all. They did us a favor here. Back to the commercial imperative. You ready? The commercial imperative is incompatible with news. I can't afford child care. Or I need medical care for whatever. So those things aren't TV friendly. What he's talking about there is issues that actually matter to people. Issues that, quote-unquote, should probably be covered on the news. You can't sell them. They don't draw enough eyeballs. It's reality TV. Infotainment. And he came right out and said it. And that, in the end, was why he got suspended. Now, the profit motive. And I saw something this weekend that was hilarious. It's on one of my friend's Facebook feeds. Posted something about the stock market. And how he was, he's a conservative guy, and he posted something down the line of, I don't care about the, the stock market, I'm going to buy stocks low. And then when the stock market rebounds, well, I'm going to sell high. It's good for me. It's good to get into the stock market when it's low. As he's talking about the worst stock market crash since the uh, Great Recession of 2008. <laughs> and one of his friends, one of his Facebook friends came in, and she was all like, oh my God, well, that stock won't mean anything if the world ends. He might well have really, all that stock won't be able to buy anything and the world will basically be destroyed. 
Then he comes back and basically says that it's bird flu, that nothing's going to happen. And I'm not really picking on either one of these guys. What struck me was the divergent perceptions of reality. For this woman, this liberal woman, it was Arma freaking Geddon. The world was going to end and all that money in the stock market wouldn't mean anything because the world would be destroyed. Whereas he wanted to compare it to bird flu or swine flu or MERS or SARS or something like that. And it was no big deal, nothing to worry about. It was obvious that their perceptions of reality, perceptions of reality, were obviously determined by the media they were consuming. Who's right? That's like the Andromeda and the Milky Way galaxy in one little thread. So what I did was I took a little screenshot of those two comments and I I filed it away on my computer so I can look at it later on when we actually understand what's going on because none of us really know anything. The CDC and the professionals really don't know what the hell's going on yet. They don't know how quickly this is going to spread. They don't know how the carnage is going to be. They have no idea. And this comes back to the trust issue. We don't know how to take what the media has given us. Who do you trust? Who do you trust specifically? And would you even listen to the other guy? Would you even listen to anything the other guy had to say? Any consideration that they would put forth about this coronavirus thing? Or are they all full of shit and are all your guys hitting that nail on the head? And when you don't know, as uh, Rachel Botsman said earlier, you withdraw. You withdraw into what you want to believe. You withdraw into the echo chamber with the flock, and you believe whatever the flock believes. You believe whatever the flock's media tells you. That's a problem. And God help us if the dire predictions are true. John Oliver did a pretty good piece on this on uh, last week tonight on Sunday. And this is what we're looking at. The fact is, a 2% mortality rate, if true, would be about 20 times higher than the seasonal flu. And while the good news is around 80% of those who get this virus have mild symptoms, the bad news is that means they are more likely to spread it without even realizing. That is one of the things that makes this so dangerous. And why, even though its mortality rate is much lower than that of SARS or MERS, this virus has already killed three times as many people. In fact, one expert has predicted that 40 to 70% of the world's population will be infected within the next year, which is incredibly upsetting. So I'm going to focus on that last number, okay? He says one expert, he didn't say who, he didn't say where it was from, just called him an expert, said that 40 to 70% of the world population could be infected with coronavirus within the next year. Could be. 40 to 70%. Now, that's a wide swing. So I did the math on this, and I couldn't even do it on my calculator. So I decided to do it just for the U.S. We have 327 million people in this country right now. Let's use the low estimate, 40%. Okay, if 40% of the U.S. population is hit with coronavirus in the next year, that is 130.8 million people. Now, the figure they're throwing out there is that it has a uh, 2% mortality rate with people with uh, you know, underlying conditions, high-risk people bearing the brunt of that. But 2% of 130.8 million people, 2% of that 40% infected would be 2,616,000 people dead in this country alone. Now, if they're right, <laughs> this isn't bird flu. Not by a damn sight. But nobody knows. 
Nobody knows anything. So who do you listen to? Who do you trust? What do you base your terror level on? Where are you going to go to get good information? In Iran, a government spokesperson attempted to reassure people that the virus was under control while the deputy health minister standing next to him started mopping away fever sweats like an Alabama preacher. <laughs> that, that guy was later confirmed to have the coronavirus, although not before going on TV again to explain away his symptoms while coughing all over the fucking studio. <laughs> And if that wasn't bad enough, which it is, it turns out the Iranian people now trust their government so little, they think he was staging the whole thing. They say they're, they're lying that they have corona, they, they want to... This is a propaganda. Well, they think he's not got it. No, 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 they say that he's lying, and in three days he's going to come out to say that, uh, oh, you see, I'm recovered, it's not serious, don't worry. The level of mistrust towards the Iranian politicians is so deep that they, they, they wouldn't believe anything that comes out of their mouth. Right. Iranians won't believe anything that comes out of their politicians' mouths, even if that thing is the actual coronavirus. <laughs> and that, that is a huge problem, because it is going to be hard for any government to give effective advice if people don't believe in them. You know, trust in institutions is critical when trying to contain a possible pandemic. I think he understated things there. It's not huge, it's catastrophic. The lack of trust in government institutions in a moment like this is catastrophic. It's deadly. If you cannot trust the information coming from your government, <laughs> good luck containing this. And the Iranians, again, a lack of trust in government to such a degree that they think the guy was pretending to have it so he could go back on TV and say, hey, I'm all better, see, it's no big deal. That's the conspiracy theory mind that I was just talking about. That's where people go when they don't trust their officials and their leadership to be tethered to external truth, and when they've just given up. They'll believe anything. He talked in another segment on the show last night about how some people think this is a biological weapon from China. And to transition to the main topic today, no, this isn't it. To transition to that, guess what? Some people are even clearly trying to profit off the present panic, like televangelist Jim Baker, who has a cure that he'd love to sell you. Would you recommend, as a doctor people to have silver in their house for, for a pandemic. Be, you never want to be without silver. You're saying that silver solution would be effective. Well, let's say it hasn't been tested on this strain of the coronavirus, but it's been <laughs> tested on other strains yeah. of the coronavirus and has been uh, able to eliminate it within 12 hours. Yeah. Totally yeah. eliminate it, kills it, and deactivates it. <laughs> okay. That is ridiculous. Silver does not kill coronavirus. Silver kills werewolves, which means first, you need to get your coronavirus bitten by a microscopic werewolf. And where am I going to find one of those in this economy? Well, that's right, from our online store. For just $49.99, we will send you John Oliver's premium werewolf solution. It contains millions of microscopic werewolves ready to spread their bestial curse to your coronavirus, and then you can use the silver solution, which is based on the exact same amount of science. The truth is... The truth is, while, clin while clinical trials are underway, there is no treatment for the coronavirus at the moment, and a vaccine could take between a year and 18 months to develop. And at this point, you may be wondering, how scared should you be? And the answer is probably a bit. A bit. Look, I, I don't want to be alarmist here, but I also don't want to minimise what we could be facing. It's really about trying to strike a sensible balance. Basically, if you're drinking bleach to protect yourself right now, <laughs> you should probably calm the fuck down. <laughs> 
if you are, say, licking subway poles because you're certain nothing can hurt you, maybe don't do that. You want to stay somewhere between those extremes. Don't be complacent and don't be a fucking idiot. Don't be complacent and don't be a fucking idiot. I really enjoyed the Jim Baker thing, though, because that is a perfect metaphor <laughs> for your media. Putting the outraged silver in a bottle and selling it to you one way or the other every single day. That's how we get these two competing informational universes colliding on a Facebook thread. These two wildly divergent perceptions of reality. If it wasn't so terrifying, if the stakes weren't so high, it would be hilarious. But the stakes are pretty damn high. And again, I think this stems back to this reality apathy and this data overload. People not trusting the media, not trusting the government, not trusting the other side, the resistance, to put forth any reliable information, to put forth any objective truth whatsoever. What we decide to believe, what this country decides to believe is completely and totally, almost completely and totally, dependent upon the political filter through which they see the world. And that's one thing when you're talking about, I don't know, a tax hike or some fantastical utopian vision for universal health care. That's one thing. When you're talking about a virus that some people think could hit 40 to 70% of the world population within a year and kill 2% of those, when you're talking about 2.6 million people possibly being dead in the next year, possibly. I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm not, you know, nobody knows. That's the thing. The experts don't even know. We have no idea what's happening. And if we did, let's pretend somebody had a clear concept of what's going on. Would we even believe it if they told us? And even if we did have an idea of what we were dealing with, would half the country, half of the damn country, ignore it? Absolutely ignore it because uh, it came from the other political cult. And would they completely ignore it? Would they go out of their way to defy it, thereby spreading the virus even more? I dare say yes, I think they would. You know, the uncertainty of what we're dealing with is bad enough. What's worse is the uncertainty and the volatility that we're dealing with with general public who will not believe what's coming from the experts, what's coming from public officials. I haven't mentioned Trump in this scenario yet. His press conference last week didn't help. He's contradicting his own public health experts. We're saying, yes, there's going to definitely be more. We just don't know how much. Well, there could be 15, and then we'll drop down to two, and then that'll be good. What the fuck? What the entire fuck? I mean... Look, I'm with you. I'm with you conservatives on a lot of things. But but I got to tell you, if you're taking your hatred for Bernie Sanders and AOC and you're believing the bullshit coming out of his mouth as a result of that, at some point, if it's not with this virus, that kind of mentality, and I shouldn't really pick on you guys because if Trump, what if Trump's right? Would you believe Trump if he was right about this? That it's nothing. I mean, to say he comes out in six weeks and say we got it under control. This is an incredibly dangerous situation. 
And not just because of the virus, it's because of us. And it's because of this agitation, boutique news media, not believing in any sense of objective truth, not trusting each other to believe in any objective truth, and the tribalism. And also it's on us too, because we demand this boutique news stuff. We want it, we devour it, so they give it to us. This isn't all a media thing, this isn't all a Trump thing, this isn't all a liberal thing. We have just as much responsibility for this as they do, because this is what we want. We live in a capitalist society, whether you like it or not, whether you love it, whether you hate it, that's the society in which we live. We live in a society that has a for-profit media model, a corporate media model. It's a business. They can only give us what we will consume or else they go out of business. So if all we want is happy facts and information that backs up our worldview, our schema, our pseudo-environment, our scripture, that's what they're going to give us. And that means nothing can be trusted. That means you cannot trust the media to give you good information. You cannot trust the politicians to give you good factual information. And in a situation like this, it could become deadly. Again, the virus is bad enough. The cognitive virus makes it worse. So one commonality that John Oliver, your undivided attention, and the Project Veritas clip had in common was the profit motive and how that affects information and how that affects trust. And as I've mentioned before, the most profitable informational commodity in this country is outrage, controversy, and primal hatred, agitation. So I'm going to start this little introduction into the next uh, phase of the podcast with a little review that I wrote, and it's incomplete. I have to say that uh, uh, right off the bat, I did not finish this book. <laughs> I will. Uh, I've got it sitting right here in front of me. I only got a little ways through it. Uh, honestly, what happened was that uh, I figured out that, yeah, the guy's pretty much saying what I've already said. Do I really need to finish this up right now? And I moved on to other things. I do need to finish this book up, and I will. But what I'm talking about here is Matt Taibbi's Hate Incorporated, Hate Inc. It's a book that came out late last year. I was slowly working my way through it as I flipped through uh, Lipman, Bernays, and a few other people. <laughs> And I got about 60 or 70 pages in, and by the time I set it down, it appeared that Taibbi had written something that read like an iconoclastic insider's indictment of his own industry. Right now, I have it opened up to the beginning of the 10 Rules of Hate chapter. And that's essentially an expose on how, uh, beginning with Crossfire in the 1980s, mentioned that earlier, and then Fox in the 90s and everyone else since, the for-profit media has unwittingly, unwittingly monetized agitation propaganda, conflict, a Taibbi's snap conclusion at the end of the chapter pretty much mirrors my general ones. Winter is here. And if something doesn't change, it's going to turn violent at some point. It's almost like the laws of basic human physics, and to assume otherwise is being obtuse. He has a section in there talking about when discourse basically becomes Hitler versus Hitler. Like each side thinks the other is Hitler. Those are his words. And when that happens, there are no rules. I mean, what rules apply when you literally think you're fighting a quote-unquote evil enemy? A diabolical, satanic enemy, a Hitler. Are there rules when you're fighting Hitler? I don't think so. 
He also has details in this book about how the New York Times editor, I think her name was Spade, uh, was fired after presuming, presuming to publicly advocate for journalistic objectivity after the New York Times embraced their openly slanted, openly slanted, rethinking objectivity. That's what they called it after Trump's election. Rethinking objectivity. They wanted to become political activists as a newspaper. And she was against that, against that rethinking objectivity slash false equivalency narrative, of course, in favor of massive, massive Trump-induced profits. They have made a killing on subscriptions since they started covering Trump and the attached outrage. It's been a boon. Now, you can understand why they would do that. Newspapers (laughs) have been uh, struggling for a really long time, and they got a cash cow. They figured out how they could finally make money in the digital age. And when you take that into account, when you take into account how profitable, how appealing, how addicting agitation propaganda is, the outrage industrial complex, how much people like being angry, it's creepy, but it also speaks to why we have the media we do. It also speaks directly to why Trump, when he screeches, fake news, fake news, why that resonates and why To be perfectly frank, he's not 100% wrong about that. Who do you trust? And again, why are they doing it? Revenues. They're up something like 36% since Trump announced in 2015. That is an insane number, 36%. Basically, they helped elect Trump in the first place with billions of dollars of what's amounted to free political advertising in the run-up to 2016. And while that was bad for us, these media outlets, some of which, like the print mediums, as I was just talking about, which were on life support not too long ago, made truckloads of money in the process. It was bad for us, bad for the political discourse, bad for everything except them. 36% increases in revenues since Trump announced in 2015. Then what did they do after Trump actually won? Did they soul-search in the face of gargantuan new revenues? <laughs> Silly. Now, they simply switched the narrative to democracy dies in darkness. They tweaked but kept the theme. Democracy dies in darkness. To justify doubling down on their profitable wall-to-wall Trump vest, complete with universal pledge drives. Have you seen those? <laughs> We're going to need each other this year. Send us money. We're all over the place. Subscription panhandling, raising the national fever in the process. There are different versions of that going on everywhere. And I got to tell you, I got to admit this. Back in the late part of my resistance days in 2017, they almost got me. I considered giving. (laughs) I considered, quote, unquote, giving (laughs) to the Washington Post. But I didn't, thank God. And this doesn't even begin to factor in any sort of foreign social media manipulation. This is just what we've done to ourselves. One of the best lines so far in this book is his own quote from 2017. He used it in this book. He says, quote, The model going forward will likely involve Republican media covering Democratic corruption and Democratic media covering Republican corruption. Unquote. That was from 2017. This is precisely how these dueling Ukraine controversies and scandals were uh, last year. And still are. Honestly, in most minds. This is how they're mutually exclusive. 
CNN was covering Trump's fuckery in the Ukraine while Fox News was covering the Bidens. <laughs> Again, that's how you get these separate parallel informational universes. It's how you get one group of people thinking that Trump's the evil villain while on the other side it's Joe Biden. Republican media covering Democratic corruption and Democratic media covering Republican corruption. And as he said, before those scandals ever broke last year, he said, quote, the average person will no longer even see, ever, derogatory reporting about his or her own quote-unquote side. Uh-huh, that's boutique news. Perfect. That's Media 101. It's going to be Media 201 as well. He concludes by pointing out that, uh, quote, being out of touch with what the other side is thinking is now no longer seen as a fault. It's a requirement. Being out of touch with what the other side is thinking is no longer seen as a fault. It's a requirement. Oof. I remember suggesting this last year. I tried it for a long time. I can't do it anymore. I had to stop. But uh, switching back and forth between CNN and Fox, to hell with MSNBC, at least in my opinion. Uh, Getting the Biden coverage from Fox, getting the Trump coverage from CNN worked really well. It gives you a, I don't want to use the word balanced, but it gives you at least insight into what the other side is thinking. Maybe what their concerns are if you can cut through the rhetoric. And that may be the best you can do if you're interested. Good luck. Hopefully you can handle that better than I could. I couldn't do it for very long. It's bad, you know. I just went on tour. She asked me why. I just went on tour. It is March 2nd, 2020. Super Tuesday is tomorrow. The election is in, what, eight months. And now we've got coronavirus on top of that. And I tell you, as I dig through this book and the other stuff, And I look around at the landscape, what's coming up after this election, virus or no, stock market crash or no, terrifies me. I could be wrong about this. You know, there is a possibility that uh, the coronavirus and the stock market crash could all combine to sort of wake the, the population up. Maybe there will be a groundswell for a moderate Democrat. Somebody that's not going to encourage more of this equal and opposite bilateral radicalization. And maybe Trump will be defeated this fall. Maybe the coronavirus and the stock market crash, whatever else is going to happen over the summer, maybe that finally breaks the national fever. You know, I had a bit of a blind spot in my historical knowledge when it came to the 19-teens and the 1920s. And the stuff that I'm reading from Lippmann and Bernays and a few other people gives the impression that the divide if not as bad as it is now, was similar in the 1920s as it is now. A time of prosperity. All of a sudden, as 1930 rolled around, or the Great Depression, other things took precedent. People have talked about how we need some national or natural disaster to strike to to sort of snap us out of this. 
to get us to see each other as, you know, countrymen, neighbors. And maybe this is it. I could be wrong. Again, you know, I never took... (laughs) never took a stock market crash of this magnitude or a, a pandemic into my prediction considerations when I talked about the election this fall. But this could be the thing that wakes people up, gets them away from the radical socialists, moves them towards moderates who are willing to compromise and willing to work with each other, at least to confront a problem and maybe bring the country along, reintroduce a spirit of compromise, cooperation. Not seeing each other as Hitler, maybe. I will offer that that could happen. Hmm. Or, <laughs> or that kind of chaos could just push us right over the edge of the cliff. Not literally Tonstradamus, I just play one on a podcast. Either way, I think John Oliver nailed this. It's incredibly wise, I think, in my view, to keep an open mind about this and pay attention to the experts. Listen to what they're saying. As this thing spreads in Europe, they're probably going to be offering information as well. See if you can get it from them. If you don't trust any of the American media, pay attention to what they're saying over in Europe. I mean, this virus has only killed 3,000 people worldwide so far, and the vast majority of them are in China. It's not exactly widespread here in the United States yet, although it did hit Florida. Saw that before I started recording tonight. A couple of cases in Illinois. I think there's one in Massachusetts. New York City, I believe, has one now. Another person has died. That's two that I know of here in the U.S. So it's still the early stages of this. And yes, it could just not take off. It could turn into another SARS. I don't know. We have to keep an open mind that's tethered to reality and objective facts. Listen to the experts here. The elites. The people who know what they're talking about. Don't listen to Nancy Pelosi insulting Trump just because he's Trump trying to score political points. That is happening. If you're listening to Trump, (laughs) really? I know you hate AOC, but come on. Is he the guy you really want to be taking advice from on this? Yes, I know he holds the title of president. He was just hosting The Apprentice a few years ago. Is this where populism takes us? Is this where electing a guy that sounds like a man of the people gets us? Are you sure you wouldn't rather have somebody who actually knows what the hell they're doing? Hate AOC all you want. Be disgusted with Bernie's socialism all you want. But don't let that influence your opinion of what's happening in the White House with this. This is too important. Because if the CDC and all the naysayers are right, you're going to be contributing to an incredibly dangerous situation for each and every one of us. Again, I'm going to repeat those figures. If they're right, again, they may not be. But presumably these figures come from somebody who knows what they're talking about. 327 million people in this country right now, 40 to 70% of the world population, could be infected within a year. That's 130.8 million people just in the United States. 40% of the United States population, the low end of that estimate, 130.8 million people, a 2% fatality rate of those infected, 2.616 million people. Again, you know what that is? That's something like 20 times the influenza outbreak, I think, in 1918. Not quite 20, between 15 and 20, I think. Please, for the love of God, all of you, 
all of us get a hold of yourselves. It's a good time to do that. So, have you changed your subscriptions yet? All right, we're back in 2023 now, and that was from March 2nd of 2020. Again, right at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. Cut very little of that episode out. A couple of things maybe for time, a couple of redundancies, but <laughs> that's the entire podcast minus the uh, uh, current event stuff at the beginning. If you want to listen to the original one, it's back there. Left it up. Uh, I think it's episode number 67. You can go check that out. So, yeah, that's it, man. Agitation propaganda sells. And what really stuck out to me there at the end, coming from me anyway, <laughs> is that, that little episode of Sausage Party Hope right there at the end. You know, the, maybe it'll wake us up. Maybe coronavirus will wake us up. <laughs> I tried, man. I tried to embrace my optimist for a minute. Listen to the experts. So how do the experts do? We have three years of hindsight now. We're on the backside of the pandemic. I can tell you that the media stopped tracking COVID totals when the shiny new Putin war toy arrived just over a year ago. And before that, you remember, the infections and death totals were constantly displayed on the screens drilled into our eardrums every minute of every day. So here's a question for you. Do you have any idea how many inf infections there have been total here in the United States? You heard the predictions back there at the very beginning, what they were saying. How close was it to that 40 to 70 percent that they were warning could hit us within a year? That's key, within a year. I didn't know either. So I went and looked it up as of yesterday, yesterday, after three years, there were 103,672,000 cases in the United States total, total since the beginning of the pandemic. Now that's a lot, nothing to scoff at, don't get me wrong, but at 31%, again, after three years, that is far short of the 40 to 70% within a year that they were warning could hit. Now, death totals, 1,119,762 deaths as of yesterday. Doing the math, it's easy math. That's about 1% of those infected turned into casualties. After three years, as of March 11th, 2023, that is less than half of the 2.6 million they said could be dead by March of 2021. Benefit of the doubt, they had a hard job. They didn't quite know what they were facing yet. They And underselling this, it was not an option in 2020. Do whatever you want with those figures. Make whatever you like out of them. Okay? But what I will say is that my little Pollyannic hopes for a virus-triggered unity movement and a renewed commitment to external truth was just that. Pollyannic sausage party hope. There's no need really, to rehash what we all saw. But I can say with utter certainty, utter certainty that if another pandemic were to hit, the people are not going to be so cooperative next time. Now that the post-pandemic autopsy has begun, more voices are out there speaking out against the effectiveness of enforced maskings, mask mandates, mandated lockdowns. The psychological effects, with some saying, that the masks did absolutely nothing or next to nothing. There are also stories out there about how negative vaccine side effects statistics, <laughs> it's hard to say, were ignored or even suppressed 
And of course, after censoring the mentions, even the mentions, censoring the mentions of the possibility back in 20 and 21, what was just a lab leak conspiracy theory is suddenly huh, not such a conspiracy theory anymore. Federal agencies now saying it's a definite possibility. Duh. John Stewart nailed that. And this is complete with internal emails showing how the talk of the theory, the lab leak theory, was suppressed to keep it away from the public. The first part of this episode that I just played was about trust. I can say with confidence today that as we emerge into the post-pandemic world, that again, things, if it happens again, they're going to be uglier than they were last time. Tribalized informational anarchy has only grown worse. These institutions, they're not helping things either. And it goes far beyond the monetized agitprop. This happened to me a few weeks ago. I shared a New York Times opinion piece discussing how mask mandates may have been a complete failure. I was shocked to see it on the New York Times website, the opinion section. I shared it. Like, incoming, oh my God, people are going to be attacking this. Well, this week, a couple of days ago, when next to no one is wearing a mask anymore, long after the mandates have ended, Facebook flagged it as misinformation saying that their independent fact checkers, their anonymous ministry of truth. Who are these fact checkers, by the way? This ministry of truth uh, from Facebook says it's heresy to mention that these mask mandates may have been ineffective. Trust. It's dead. I have another episode back there. It's called All You Need Is Doubt. Without trust in institutions, informational anarchy is only a step or two away from becoming the other kind. You can't have a democracy without trust, without a commitment to a common external truth. Finding it, getting to the truth rather than just reinforcing the tribal narrative. You can't have that. Also touching once again on the boutique news thing, as I mentioned in the open, Fox News, specifically Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, are all in the news this week as fallout from the Dominion lawsuit continues. Internal emails showing point blank and in black and white how they sold the stolen election horseshit to stave off uh, falling ratings. Newsmax and all those other these threats that they saw gathering on their right flank. Selling Trump's horseshit to stave off that threat even though they knew it was false. It's right there in black and white. For everybody to see. And it's not just the uh, the opinion hosts on Fox. Jenna Ellis, do you remember her? Well, she's actually pretty good at what she did. She was a less crazy one. I think Sidney Powell, she was the crazy one. This was the, the one that was just full of shit, but really good at what she did. <laughs> she also admitted this week that she deceived people in national interviews. Admitted it. Under oath. Understand, though, this isn't the story. The real story is about how despite seeing under oath admissions, the emails written by these hosts themselves admitting that the stolen election story was a ruse designed to inflate and maintain ratings at the expense of American democracy itself. The patriots who bought into this in 20 and early 21 still believe the election was stolen and still, still, Hang on their every word. That, to me, your humble host, is the story. 
I've said it a million times, the switch is internal. You can lead a horse to water, but you'll never lead a person to any kind of truth that they just refuse to see. If Tucker, Hannity, and Jenna Ellis, Laura Ingram themselves, themselves, if they can't convince these folks that Tucker, Hannity, Ellis, and Trump fleeced them, what hope do you have? What hope do you have of convincing them? You have to apply this ointment liberally to woke flake fanaticism as well. Don't start prancing around like self-righteous peacocks preaching about your own cult's truth-seeking virtue. And keep in mind that none of this is ideologically specific. Social momentum. It's a hell of a thing. It's a hell of a very universal thing. You combine this stuff with the addiction to outgroup hatred, it's plain to see that not only are the system and our institutions defective, we the people are as well. Eventually, it comes right back there. So there you go. I'm strongly considering, there's a couple more episodes, I think, from March of 2020 as, as uh, coronavirus started to ramp up that are about as good as this one. There's another one back there a couple, maybe two or three episodes later. That's really good talking about the religious mind and how it applies to COVID as well. I'm thinking about <laughs> going and grabbing that one too and doing another one of these reloads. It's kind of occurred to me that, uh, especially over the last couple of weeks, as you know, Facebook has its, its positive points. And one of those is that it gives you, you know, the memory feed. So everything's popping up now from January, February, and now March of like 2020. And it's reminded me of where this podcast specifically was going pre-COVID. It was in a really good place. <laughs> it really was. And this was sort of, you could hear it in the episode here, that I was going to try to pivot everything toward the media. I never really got there because coronavirus took over everything. Whatever it was that I was going to try to do that year, I never got to. I got sort of disorganized and knocked off track with, with COVID. And I've spent the last couple of weeks trying to figure out how to get back there, but something's changed. Something's changed. And I talked about this in one of the episodes in uh, September, maybe October or November, one of them back there, when I started getting into storytelling. The storytellers, not truth seekers aspect of this. Because I think at that point in time, I didn't have a lot of hope for things, but I was, I was kind of still clinging on to this notion that maybe if we understood this stuff, we'd be able to change it. That people really wanted, you know, I, I, I think I was still clinging on to this notion that people really want the truth. Deep down inside, if you tell people about it, that they're going to grab a hold of it, it might take them a while, but eventually that seed is going to sprout and you'll be able to do something about the problem because you cannot face well, how does that, that saying go? If you face something, you might not be able to solve the problem, but you'll never solve the problem until you face it, right? So I think I was still kind of clinging on to that notion. And I think maybe during the course, course of COVID, during the, uh, the pandemic, watching the reactions to it, watching people cleave off into their informational silos and tribes, I started to see, no, you know what? It's the story. <laughs> it's the story. But I'm trying to figure out a way to get back there a little bit and try to try to meld these two ideas together. If you understand what you're seeing, at least, then maybe something can be done. But nothing can be done until we're willing to look at it, until we're willing to see it, until we're willing to look collectively in the mirror. That hasn't changed. This evolution that I keep talking about, this evolution in collective self-awareness, that's what's needed because evolution's coming one way or another. 
We're going to be made aware of our shortcomings eventually, either the easy way or the hard way. As things collapse in upon themselves, it's going to get to the point where it gets bad enough where this introspection becomes forced, this rock-bottom situation that I've talked about with addicts before. It doesn't always get there. It doesn't always work. Sometimes an addict doesn't hit rock-bottom. They hit the bottom of the grave before they ever do any sort of soul-searching and introspection. I'm not convinced that society is any different. I'm hoping it is. Because that's the path forward. And I think that's where I was trying to go with the, with the shows back in 2020. I really enjoy these. They're some of my best. And I really, I, I, I'm pissed off that I got knocked off track. And listening to the stuff, I can see where I'm going. I, I, I really hope that I have the material that I prepared when I talked about pivoting and steering the ship of pod <laughs> off toward media. A little bit more of the Media 201 stuff. I really hope that I have it somewhere. I can get back there, I think. I've got my notebooks and all this other stuff, but yeah, I feel like I was really, I was heading in a very, very uh, good direction, a powerful direction with the, the material that I was putting out back then. And I, I'm pissed off that I didn't finish it, but now it's got, like I said, it's got this other stuff, this other nuance that has to be added with the storytelling, this addiction to narrative, this addiction to fiction, the fiction addiction. <laughs> That's an episode back there too. So hopefully... I'm going to try to get back there. And I got to, I got to tell you, I am, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I came out and said, I think in November, that I was going to line up in sort of this anti-woke stance. Nothing's changed about my opinions of woke flakedom. I'm still exactly where I was, but I am not entirely comfortable. And I haven't been, I, I, I think since maybe a couple of days after I, I made that pronouncement. Not entirely comfortable being allied with the extreme end of the anti-woke crowd. It's a matter of, right now anyway, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right now, but eventually. And I can already see indications of this happening. Eventually, Newton's third law of extremism is going to apply to the anti-woke crowd as well. And they're going to become just as bad, if not worse, than the woke illiberalism. Walter Lippmann went into this. And it's a bit of a free speech, free society paradox. If a, if a society is free... Its ideological borders are open. The institution's vulnerable to being hijacked and seized by illiberal insurgents. You know, if a naked communist or Nazi were to win a hypothetical national election tomorrow, let's say that with a 40% turnout, one of them got the most votes. How would, how could democracy react to its self-inflicted demise? What do you do about that? Does democracy have the means to defend itself? True democracy is the only system lacking those means. To do so essentially requires illiberally stifling illiberal organizing and speech. The sacrificing of some of these quote-unquote freedoms so many people assume are absolute. If the people become sufficiently illiberal, if they're no longer able to tell fact from fictitious bullshit for whatever reason, the people collectively get exactly what they deserve. It's either that or certain elements of that democracy have to be amputated to save the rest of the cancer-infested and probably terminal body. We've all heard it. Lots of smart people have written over centuries that democracy might have shelf life, expiration date, because the people are inherently flawed and incapable or unwilling, doesn't matter which, 
to properly maintain it. No one who claims otherwise has ever shown me reasonable proof to the contrary without using a whole lot of dreamland shoulds. People should this. Some people should that. (sighs) I am still available for children's parties. Now doing bat mitzvahs. Maybe a brist. Use promo code, it's the people. And you'll get 50% off. Friend. I started this bed too late again. Now I got to babble way too long. Escapingthecave.com is the website for right now. Again, I want to remind you that there's going to be a change. I'm going to move this base of meager operations over to Substack completely. That website's probably going to go away sooner than later. So keep an eye out for that. Still on the Facebook page for right now. I'll put all the information up there before I move. That page is probably going away as well. Still got the YouTube channel. Been adding some stuff up there, some different stuff, drone videos, things like that, along with uh, the video clips. That's Tazilla X over at uh, YouTube. There's an Instagram thing out there. There's Twitter account, at ETCPod, Tazilla X, all that good stuff. I enjoyed this podcast. I'm glad I went back and uh, re-listened to it. We'll talk to you next time. So long.